All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 42, for September 2022. Mint condition, some Laurel Hill coinage connections. National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kenwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. If you live in Philadelphia, you know about the Philadelphia Mint at Fifth and Arch. This is our fourth mint in Philadelphia. The first opened in 1792, just a few hundred feet away from the current one. Literally billions of coins have been pressed in its highly efficient, highly secure building. Thousands of Philadelphians have worked at the Mint, and many of them served as either director or superintendent. I will tell you some stories of the Mint. I will give you biographies of three directors and one superintendent. And I will also tell you the story of an extraordinary coin collector who has a painting on display in the Senate portion of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington. Today's podcast is about father and son Robert Patterson and Robert Maskell Patterson, uncle and nephew James Ross Snowden and Archibald Loudon Snowden, and polymath Augustus Goodyear Heaton. All five are interred at Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. Get comfortable and listen to my tales about these men who helped make America what it has become in this September edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Mint condition, some Laurel Hill coinage connections. Imagine that you are in colonial Philadelphia 250 years ago. You decide to buy a sack of flour or a book or to go to a theater to see a play by Shakespeare. You hand over a Spanish gold piece, which was more or less accepted as the universal currency at the time. The gold escudo had been around since the 1530s. It was minted in denominations of one-half, one, two, four, and eight escudo coins. The two escudo gold coin, or double escudo, was also known as a doubloon. It was worth about four Spanish dollars, or 32 reales. That means there were eight reales, or bits, per dollar. Hence, a dollar was a piece of eight, and a quarter dollar was two bits. The word dollar came from the 16th century kingdom of Bohemia which began minting coins from silver mined locally in Wachimstall. The coins were named Wachimstaller after the town and became shortened 
in common usage to Toller or Toller. The town itself derived its name from St. Joaquin, coupled with the German word Tal, meaning valley. Toller found its way into other languages as a Tolar, Slovakia, Dolar, Spain, or Dollar. Your purchase is less than your Spanish dollar, so you take your change. A handful of English shillings, some French francs, maybe some German golden or kreutzer, and probably a few counterfeit George III halfpennies. To add to your confusion, this same purchase in New York or New England would get you a different amount of change. In some parts of New York, a York State shilling was 12 and a half pence, but the New England shilling was 16 and two-third pence, and the term cent, well, that was unheard of. Many earlier settlers had adapted the ways of the indigenous people. In addition to straight commodities trade, I will give you these tools in a kettle for those six beaver skins. They also used wampum, which means white shell beads. Wampum was most common among eastern shore tribes, which collected small mollusk shells and cut them down to about the size of a corn kernel and then rolled them smooth on sandstone. The wampum was then drilled and strung on a leather thong into a single strand or woven to make a belt. Wampum had no intrinsic value like gold or silver, yet it could still be exchanged for goods. Colonists gamed the system by producing finished wampum from natural shells using manufacturing techniques unknown to the Native Americans, an early example of Gresham's Law, that is, bad money drives out good. Another Native item used in commerce was tobacco. These settlers outside of East Coast cities had little use for coins. They bartered with Natives and exchanged with each other. Now, colonists depended on new coins to arrive with the new immigrants. But England and other European countries carefully limited the amount of gold and silver that could be taken out of their countries. And once they were spent by the newly arriving immigrants, these coins were often hoarded as a store of wealth and never returned to circulation. There were no banks where people could keep their money, and most people would probably not have trusted them if they did exist. The lack of circulating money inhibited commercial growth. Colonial governments collected customs duties and taxes paid on goods that were imported from outside the colonies as their main source of income. Several of the colonies did mint their own coinage, but it was not widely dispersed through the rest of the New World. When the American colonies declared their independence in 1776, one of the biggest problems confronting the Continental Congress was financing the war effort. Soldiers and sailors needed food, clothing, and weapons. Britain had been America's primary trading partner, so that source was cut off. Supplies of refined silver and gold to be used for coins were limited and known sources of raw ore were quite scarce in the colonies. The great discoveries of gold and silver in the 19th century were still decades away. Despite efforts by New Hampshire and Massachusetts, early attempts at minting state coins were aborted. 
the new country of the United States went through the War of Revolution without its own coins. The war effort was supported by paper money, quote, redeemable in Spanish milled dollars, end quote. An early attempt at American coin minting gave us the so-called Fujio dollar, Fujio meaning I fly. It had Benjamin Franklin's aphorism, mind your business, stamped in large letters. On the reverse side are 13 interlocking rings on the periphery, with the script American Congress and We Are One in the middle. After the 1783 Treaty of Paris between Great Britain and the new United States of America, the need was recognized for a monetary system to establish trade and to pay off the war debts. New York's Gouverneur Morris, the Assistant Secretary of Finance, decided to break away from Great Britain's pound-shilling-pence system with 240 pence per pound. He rather suggested we adopt the decimal system. Treasury Superintendent Robert Morris of Philadelphia, no relation to Gouverneur, commissioned an engraver to establish a mint, but there was no silver bullion. The term bullion comes from the French for boiling, indicating the heat needed to melt the metal. It should not be confused with bouillon, a savory liquid which master chef James Beard said was interchangeable with stock and broth. Robert Morris is interred in the churchyard of Christ Church on 2nd Street. Congress agreed with the decimal system in July 1785 and said the coins would be eagle, $10, half eagle, $5, dollar, half dollar, double dime, dime, cent, and half cent. The amount of silver in a dollar was fixed at 375.64 grains, roughly 19 coins to the pound. But still, there was no mint, and nothing was minted. Finally, in March 1791, after a report from Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, both houses passed a resolution that a mint be established and that the President of the United States be authorized to engage artists and buy apparatus. The House of Representatives argued about what or who should go on the coins. Some argued that putting the head of the president was a monarchical practice which was unnecessary for historical purposes and might be distasteful to the country's occupants. One congressman said, however well pleased they may be with the head of the great man now our president, they may have no reason to be pleased with some of his successors. The final decision was for an image emblematic of liberty. And on 2 April 1792, the legislation was signed into law by President George Washington and the United States at long last had its own mint and coinage on paper anyway. The Coinage Act or the Mint Act called for five officers, a director, an assayer, a chief coiner, an engraver, and a treasurer, who is not the same as the treasurer of the United States. Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution says, quote, The Congress shall have power to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coins, and fix the standard of weights and measures to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. End quote. 
At least two of the first five Mint officers were from Philadelphia. President Washington appointed 60-year-old Philadelphian David Rittenhouse, astronomer, assayer, clockmaker, scientist, to be the first director of the United States Mint. I will talk about polymath Rittenhouse at length in a future podcast on astronomers and the transit of Venus. On 18 July 1792, Rittenhouse purchased two lots facing 7th Street between Market and Arch. He removed the unsuitable buildings from the lot, they had been distilleries, and he built adequate workspace in its place. The workmen celebrated the groundbreaking with a round of punch that was financed by Rittenhouse's sale of debris from the old distillery. The structure was ready by early September, but they had no equipment, lathes, saws, roller machines to convert ingots into long strips where coin blanks were punched coin presses. At that time, coin presses were of the screw type, and they were powered by human muscle and horsepower. Two to four men were required to swing the heavy crossarm that turned a screw mechanism. The turning screw forced the upper die against the lower one with a planchet or metal strip in between them. The blow of the press caused the planchet metal to fill the die's cavities, creating a finished coin. These hand-thrown screw presses were used until 1836, when the first steam press was installed. Another snag, both the chief assayer and the chief coiner had to post a bond of $10,000 before they could assume their jobs. This was a tremendous amount of money in 1792, especially when their salary was only going to be $1,500 a year. There was no way that assayer Albion Cox and chief coiner Henry Voigt could meet this requirement. In March 1794, Congress changed the requirements to lower the chief coiner's bond to $5,000 and that of the assayer to $1,000. The first assayer, and possibly first engraver, Henry Voigt, 1738-1814, is interred at Laurel Hill East. I will talk about him in an upcoming podcast about clock and watchmakers. A small number of coins was struck in the summer of 1792, before the mint was ready. On 13 July, several mint employees struck 1,500 coins to the exact specifications of the Mint Act. Since the mint came under the direction of the State Department, the coins were delivered directly to the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, as the mint's officers had not yet been bonded. There is a legend that President and Mrs. Washington donated some of their silverware to be melted as a supply of bullion for these first coins. Washington took a great interest in the mint. He frequently stopped by on his morning walk to work. Washington recognized that coins bearing the imprint of the United States were an unquestionable mark of national sovereignty and prestige. Rittenhouse quickly realized that the property was not big enough, so he arranged the purchase of a lot at 629 Filbert Street. It was separated from the other mint buildings by a narrow path that was called Bone Alley. The mint paid a yearly rental to Director Rittenhouse 
in the form of Spanish dollars. Mint work was hard. Operations started at 5 o'clock in the morning and went until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, except on Saturdays when they closed at 2 p.m. This was a 64-hour work week. Sundays were free, of course, and Christmas Day and the 4th of July were established holidays. Drinking and smoking on the premises were prohibited. The punishment for embezzlement of any of the coins or medals was death. The night watchman attended from 6 p.m. to 5 a.m. He was equipped with a short sword, a loaded pistol, and a watchdog. The chief pressman made $1.80 a day, while the chief adjuster got $1.60. Other adjusters, including two women, Sarah Waldrake and Rachel Summers, made as little as 50 cents daily. There's a lot more about the U.S. Mint that you can learn from their website, including the story of their mascot, Peter the Mint Bird, a bald eagle who served as a model for several coins in the 1830s. He was considered a pet and given free reign in the Mint and in the city. Peter would go out to hunt during the day, and everyone in the city got to know him. One day, he carelessly landed on a machine which suddenly started and broke one of his wings. Peter was taxidermized by an expert, and from a glass case, he still looks over his mint. He's maybe the second most famous stuffed bird in Philadelphia, after Charles Dickens' raven Grip, who is in a glass case at the rare book floor at the Philadelphia Public Library. Many people feel that Edgar Allan Poe's most famous poem, The Raven, was inspired by Grip. I'm going to talk now about a few people associated with the Mint. The father and son team of Robert Patterson, fourth director, and Robert Maskell Patterson, the sixth director. Ninth director, James Ross Snowden, and his nephew, coiner Archibald Loudon Snowden, and numismatist and painter. Augustus Goodyear Heaton. The Mint struggled to survive in its early years. Director David Rittenhouse became exhausted in dealing with all the equipment and personnel problems, and he stepped down from his office in June 1795. George Washington replaced him with the reluctant Henry William de Saussure of South Carolina, who lasted just a few months. He was replaced by Elias Boudinot, a New Jersey statesman who had been president of the Continental Congress in 1781 and 1782. Boudinot stayed in the position for 10 exhaustive years, struggling with poor quality machinery, lack of raw materials, and the ever-threatening specter of yellow fever nearly every Philadelphia summer, which closed the mint for months on end. Despite a Herculean effort, the mint could not keep up with the demand for coins. Other than people living in the largest cities of the Northeast, the new coins were rarely seen by American citizens. Congress had been forced year after year to determine legal tender values for foreign coins, and its patience was wearing thin. Many of the newly minted silver coins were exported overseas and were more likely to be found in Lisbon than in Savannah. 
New gold coins proved to be more valuable than their equivalent face value in silver dollars, and they were often exported as bullion and quickly melted in their new home. This value difference was due to a miscalculation by Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton in 1792. Only copper cents were plentiful in circulation, but their cost of production exceeded their face value. The mint lost money on every penny it produced. In 1800, the Senate passed a resolution that called to abolish the U.S. Mint and place a contract for coining with the Bank of the United States. Because of its uncertain future existence, the Mint stayed in Philadelphia when the rest of the government moved to Washington, D.C. that same year. The House did not pass the Senate bill. In April 1802, a bill for abolishing the Mint did pass in the House of Representatives, but it was ignored by the Senate, which now voted to extend its lease on life. Finally, in March 1803, a bill called for renewal of the Mint's operation for a period of five years. This bill was extended four more times until finally, on 19 May 1828, the Mint was granted a permanent lease to remain, quote, in force and operation until otherwise provided by law, end quote. It was during this time that the two Robert Pattersons, father and son, became directors of the Mint. Now, I warn you, if you put the name Robert Patterson into Wikipedia, the default page is a man buried at Laurel Hill East, General Robert Patterson, whose magnificent lion statue guards his tomb overlooking the Schuylkill at the beginning of Millionaire's Row. That is not the Robert Patterson we are interested in today. If you use the search tool on the cemetery's webpage, you will find seven Robert Pattersons at Laurel Hill West and 11 at Laurel Hill East. And that doesn't include the Statue of Old Mortality, who greets you along with Sir Walter Scott when you enter through the gatehouse at East. Yes, his name is also Robert Patterson, except with one T. Our Robert Patterson was the son of another Robert Patterson and Jane Walkers. He was born on 30 May 1743 on a lease-held farm near Hillsborough, County Down, Ireland. His family was respectable, though not affluent. At school, he soon became distinguished for his love of learning, especially mathematics. But his family could not afford to pay for a university education. When the French invaded Ireland in 1759, that's the same year that Arthur Guinness leased the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin, Patterson enlisted in the militia as a private. After serving for a year, he was promoted to sergeant. He soon attracted the attention of officers of a British regiment stationed near Hillsborough who offered him a commission in the regular army. Patterson refused. He returned home to work on the family farm. But this, too, proved unsatisfying. When Patterson was 25 years old in 1768, he sailed for the New World, and he arrived almost penniless. After spending a week in Philadelphia, he set out on foot for Bucks County to find a job as a schoolmaster. Patterson was a good teacher, but he decided to make more use of his mathematical talents in the big city, 
especially with his ability to determine longitude using lunar observations. He moved back to Philadelphia to teach navigation. One of his first students was Andrew Ellicott, who later became a well-known surveyor of the original boundaries of the District of Columbia. Patterson wrote back to family in Ireland and told of his success. So in 1771, his parents, two of his brothers, and two of his sisters immigrated to the New World. In 1772, with his finances vastly improved, Patterson was persuaded by a friend to invest his money in merchandise and open a country store in New Jersey. But he was unsuccessful as a shopkeeper, and he gladly took a position as principal of the Wilmington Academy in Delaware in 1774. At the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, his duties as principal were suspended since many of his students were called home to fight. Patterson enlisted as a military instructor in the Delaware militia, then under the command of Colonel John Haslett. He later served under Colonel David Hall, first in the Medical Corps and then as a brigade major. He remained in the military until the British Army evacuated Philadelphia and New Jersey in 1778, when his brigade was disbanded. In 1779, after the College and Academy of Philadelphia were reorganized into the University of the State of Pennsylvania, Patterson successfully applied to John Ewing, the provost, for employment. He served as professor of mathematics from 1779 to 1810, professor of natural philosophy and mathematics from 1810 to 1813, and vice provost from 1810 to 1813. He was granted an honorary master of arts in 1788 and an honorary doctor of laws in 1819. When he resigned in 1814, Patterson was succeeded as professor of mathematics as well as vice provost by his son, 27-year-old Robert Maskell Patterson. Patterson lived at nine different addresses during his time in Philadelphia. The last site was at 285 Chestnut Street. He said that he only remembered the address because the second digit was the cube of the first and the third was the mean of the first two. In 1783, at age 40, Patterson was elected to the American Philosophical Society and he was an active member for many years. He became the society's secretary in 1784, its vice president in 1799, and its president in 1819, succeeding Benjamin Franklin, David Rittenhouse, Thomas Jefferson, Caspar Wistar, and others. He married Amy Hunter Ewing, a daughter of Maskell Ewing Esquire of Greenwich, Cumberland County, New Jersey, and together they had eight children. Patterson was also one of the five members of the American Philosophical Society that President Jefferson chose to assist and instruct Meriwether Lewis and William Clark in preparation for their expedition into the Pacific Northwest. Patterson was also a member of the Select Council of Philadelphia and served as its president in 1799. Patterson remained friends with Thomas Jefferson and they corresponded often. In 1805, Jefferson appointed him to be director of the U.S. Mint to replace Elias Bodineau. 
It was a position that he would hold until his death 19 years later. During his tenure, the mint continued to struggle. Nearly all of its silver output was in the form of half dollars. The only other coin being made consistently was the copper penny. It would not be until the 1830s that the number of U.S. coins in circulation caught up with the foreign currency in circulation. Even while serving as Mint Director, Patterson contributed several papers to the transactions of the American Philosophical Society, and he was a frequent supplier of problems and puzzles to mathematical journals. In 1806, he published a revised edition of James Ferguson's Lectures on Select Subjects in Mechanics. In 1808, a revised edition of John Webster's Elements of Natural Philosophy. And in 1809, a revised edition of Ferguson's Astronomy. In 1808, Patterson wrote a short treatise consisting of six lectures on natural phenomena for the non-scientist entitled Newton's System of Philosophy. His 1818, A Treatise of Practical Arithmetic, contained extracts from his mathematical lecture notes at the university, but proved too difficult for beginners to grasp. On 14 July 1824, Thomas Leeper, the founder and treasurer of the Philadelphia City Troupe, whose daughter Helen had married Robert's son, Robert Maskell, wrote a sad letter to his friend Thomas Jefferson. Dear Sir, Dr. Robert Patterson is extremely ill and not expected to live many days. This unhappy occurrence will leave a vacancy in the office of Director of the Mint. Several persons has already been named as the future officer, and among them his son, Dr. Robert M. Patterson, who is also my son-in-law. This gentleman is now in every respect such as his father was when he received the office at your hands. He is the Vice Provost and Professor of Natural Philosophy and Chemistry in the University, the Secretary of the Philosophical Society over which you so long presided, an efficient and highly valued member of all of our literary institutions. He has always been a warm supporter of the present administration, and during the late war acted as Chief of the Corps of Volunteer Engineers, which was formed for the defense of Philadelphia. He has an increasing family depending exclusively on his exertions. His manners are of the most popular character, and no one of our citizens enjoys in a higher degree of the confidence and esteem of all classes. I am about applying on his behalf to the President of the United States, and the principal object of this letter is to invite your assistance in procuring for him the office. The mass of our most respectable people are decidedly favorable to his success, and I am very sure that nothing but a want of intimate acquaintance with you can deprive him of the honor and advantage of your countenance and aid. He has all my warmest wishes, and you will greatly add to the large debt of gratitude which I already owe you by any and every exertions to assist me in obtaining this favorite object. I am with the greatest respect and esteem your most obedient servant, Thomas Leeper. Robert Patterson had devoted his life to the exact sciences and practical applications of mathematics. Just before his death, he helped found the Franklin Institute of Philadelphia. 
He served as the first chairman of its board of managers. He died on 22 July 1824 in Philadelphia, eight days after the letter to Jefferson from Thomas Leeper. He was 81 years old and he had served 19 years as director of the U.S. Mint. His son did not receive an appointment to succeed him as director, yet. The fifth director of the Mint was Dr. Samuel Moore, 1774 to 1861, who served from 1824 to 1835. He is interred at Woodlands Cemetery. It was during Moore's tenure that the United States government decided that the Mint was here to stay and invested in steam-powered tools to greatly increase the coinage output. Moore saw the Mint into its second larger location at Chestnut in Juniper in a building designed by William Strickland. It is now the site of the Widener Building at 13th and Chestnut. It was from one of these windows that employee Joseph Saxton took the first daguerreotype in the United States in September 1839. It was a picture of the next door neighbor, Central High School. After Moore got things up and running at the new building, he stepped down and was succeeded by Robert Patterson the Younger. Patterson came into the job just as Congress passed a bill allowing three branches of the Mint to open. New Orleans, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Dolanega, Georgia. It took them about three years before they showed some output. Robert Maskell Patterson was born in 1787, while his father was a professor of mathematics at the University of Pennsylvania. He attended the University of Pennsylvania's preparatory school and received his BA at age 17 in 1804. And then he went on to study medicine at the university under Benjamin Smith Burton. He earned his MD in 1808 when he was 21. As his friend John Kensink Kane, later district judge and attorney general for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania noted, Dr. Patterson was an inmate of the university almost from his cradle. After graduation, Patterson went to Paris to pursue his studies at the Jardin des Plantes. He worked with a number of prominent scientists who encouraged him to study natural history, chemistry, and mathematics, which became his passions for life. In 1811, he went to England to complete his training in chemistry with Humphrey Davy, 1778-1829, at London. Some scientific historians believe that because of these studies, Patterson was the first person in the United States to teach atomic theory. Shortly after his return to Philadelphia in 1812, Patterson, age 22, was elected to the American Philosophical Society, the youngest man admitted during the first century of the society's existence. He was also appointed professor of natural philosophy in the medical department at the University of Pennsylvania. He subsequently became a professor of natural history, chemistry, and mathematics in the Faculty of Arts, and in 1814, he assumed the post of vice provost. That was the year he married Helen Hamilton Leeper, 1792-1871, daughter of Thomas Leeper. The couple had six children. Just as his father had instructed Meriwether Lewis in the measurement of latitude, 
during his survey of the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase. Robert the Younger helped organize Ferdinand R. Hassler, 1770 to 1843, planned coastal survey. Hassler is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section P. I included him in a virtual tour I did in 2021. You can find it on YouTube under Hot Spots and Storied Plots number two. The Elder Patterson belonged to a group of APS members that had been instrumental in the establishing of a coastal survey in 1807. Robert the Elder had selected Hassler as its director that year. And after many delays due to financial problems and difficulties in obtaining suitable instruments, Hessler was finally scheduled to conduct the first survey in 1816-1817. Hessler turned to the American Philosophical Society for assistance, and both father and son contributed to a list of useful literature and apparatus. In 1826, Patterson the Younger was selected by the Pennsylvania governor to determine the best source of water for the planned state canal. Patterson the Younger was a master of ciphers. He used to exchange coded messages with Thomas Jefferson. There's one letter dated 19 December 1801 that sat for 206 years before it was decoded by a contemporary cryptologist. The cipher consists of seven digit pairs and is decoded by decrypting seven blocks at a time. Patterson called it his perfect cipher and Jefferson considered adopting it for government use. It would work in any language, it was easy to memorize, it was simple to perform, and it was indecipherable to anyone who didn't have the key. So what message had Patterson sent to Jefferson for him to decipher that took experts 200 years for others to puzzle? It was an encrypted copy of the Declaration of Independence, which Jefferson had written in 1776. Patterson stayed at the University of Pennsylvania until 1828, when he was persuaded to take the chair in natural philosophy at the University of Virginia, which had started its classes three years earlier. He routinely used a large collection of apparatus during his lectures and demonstrations. His colleague and friend, Robley Dunglinson, 1798-1869, Laurel Hill East in Section B, recalled that as a lecturer of science, Dr. Patterson was one of the most successful I have ever heard. His student, John Fries Frazier, 1812-1872, Laurel Hill East Section G, noted that from Patterson, quote, he received the best and most effective lessons in the art of teaching. He was drawn back to Philadelphia in 1835 when he was appointed sixth director of the U.S. Mint by President Andrew Jackson. He drew up a new code of mint laws which included changes in the composition of the alloys in the coins. Since enough coins were now being minted to be in wide circulation, Patterson looked for fresh designs. He commissioned two renowned Philadelphia artists, Thomas Sully, Laurel Hill East, Section A, and Titian Peel, Laurel Hill East, Section 8, to prepare designs for a new series of silver dollars. Sully did the obverse design, Liberty seated on a rock, 
carrying a shield and a staff. Peel did the reverse, a magnificent soaring eagle for which Peter the Mint Eagle had served as model. Under Patterson, the mint at last became solvent and economical. Between 1837 and 1849 was probably the only time in the United States that the policy of bimetallism, both the silver standard and the gold standard, actually worked, and both metals circulated side by side. With the discovery of gold in California in 1848, things started to destabilize. I will talk about that in the next section of the podcast. After 16 years, poor health compelled Patterson to curtail his activities in 1851, and he retired. Kane recalled that Patterson passed, quote, unscathed through the purgatory of several political conflicts and their alternating denunciations of triumph, end quote. Despite all the time he spent at the Mint, he stayed busy in various social and scientific organizations. In 1813, he was elected one of the secretaries of the American Philosophical Society. In 1825, he was chosen as vice president. And from 1849 until his death in 1854, he served as the society's president. He also belonged to the Academy of Natural Science, the Franklin Institute, which he had helped found, and the Musical Fund Society, and the Institution for the Blind. He was a trustee of Old Scots Presbyterian Church and the president of the Pennsylvania Life Annuity Company. Patterson also belonged to the Five Club. This was a social club that included Kane, Dunglinson, George W. Bethune, Alexander Dallas Beach, 1806-1867. They met regularly for conversation. Their meetings, according to Judge Kane, were quiet, joyous, and instructive. Sounds like the Lunar Society of Birmingham. Robert Maskell Patterson died in Philadelphia in 1854. He was buried in the Leeper family plot at Laurel Hill East, overlooking the river, not far from John Kinsink Kane and Ferdinand Hassler. His papers are held by the American Philosophical Society. I guess you've noticed the name change over the last few podcasts. Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill East. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill West. They have one website together. It's at laurelhillphl.com. All the things you used to find at either website, you now find at the one. We've got a lot of activities coming up in September. Uh, We're even involved in Fringe on September 9th, 10th, and 16th, 17th. There is a Fringe performance, Death is a Cabaret, Old Chum, a Graveyard Cabaret. 8 p.m. at Laurel Hill East on those dates, 9th and 10th, 16th and 17th. Saturday the 10th, there is a Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour at Laurel Hill East at 10 a.m. There is another one on Thursday the 15th at 10 a.m. And there is a third one on Friday the 23rd 
at 10 a.m. Those are at east. The hot spots equivalent at west is sacred spaces and storied places. That one is on Saturday the 24th at 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill West. That is my 75th birthday, and I will be your guide for that. I plan to have some cake and ice cream there. There's also a virtual hotspots tour on Wednesday the 14th. I'm doing that one also. There's no charge for the virtual tour, but you have to register so you can find out how to tune in. And that will be at 6.30 on Wednesday the 14th. Now, what about our special programs? Let's see. We had a lot of ones. Uh, Saturday the 10th, afternoon out with our dearly departed, a Victorian picnic and tour at 1 p.m., Uh, on Saturday the 10th. That'll be at Laurel Hill East. Tangling the Stones Zentangle Workshop, 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill West. And they will provide the materials for that. I hope they will also explain that. I have no idea what that will be. Great theme tour, Sunday the 18th. It's in both cemeteries. Pines and Plots, Brewmasters of Laurel Hill. It starts at Laurel Hill West at 1 p.m. And yes, there will be beer at the end. What other... Oh, Spirits and Spiritualists on Sunday the 25th. That is at East. That should be a good one. That is, uh, what time? 1 p.m. on September 25th. And then Sacred Stone, uh, Laurel Hill as a Sculpture Garden. That one, I haven't seen that one for the last couple of years. I'm glad that one's back. Because Mary Ellen does such a great job on that tour. Uh, you know, I keep saying that Laurel Hill is a sculpture garden. It truly is. And you'll find out if you go on this tour that she gives. And uh, she'll point out all of the, the marvelous, marvelous sculptors in, uh, in the cemetery. There is a members only that is sold out. See, that's the advantage of being a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, as you get early notice on these things. But there is a New Moon Cocktail Mixology Workshop on the 21st, and I won't say any more about it because it is sold out. And what else? Boneyard Bookworms at Laurel Hill East on the 20th at 6 p.m. That's the free book club meeting. I guess the book that's being discussed is Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Samard, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, S-I-M-A-R-D. If you have any comments, if you have any suggestions for either All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories or Biographical Bites from Bala, West, or Laurel Hill West Stories, let me know, joe at joelex.net is my email. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. For coining purposes, base metals and precious metals were used. Base metals, iron, nickel, lead, zinc, and copper, were used for small denomination coins. The precious metal coins were made from silver and gold, but these metals were both scarce in America. That changed on 24 January 1848, when workers who were building a sawmill for Swiss entrepreneur John Souter noticed some peculiar shiny particles in a branch of the American River in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains of the California Territory. Souter and his foreman James Marshall used instructions from an encyclopedia on how to weigh the samples and test them with acid. 
and their appraisal showed that the flex and nuggets were indeed gold. One week later, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, ending the Mexican-American War. Word got out, and soon prospectors and miners arrived by the thousands from both land and sea. California was admitted to the Union on 9 September 1850 as the 31st state. The earliest gold seekers, sometimes called the 48ers, had gotten the low-hanging fruit. Some of them collected a large amount of accessible gold, sometimes thousands of dollars worth every day. Even an average prospector could make gold finds worth 10 to 15 times the daily wage of a laborer on the East Coast. A person could work for six months in the gold fields and get the equivalent of six years wages back home. So when word got out, the rush was on and 49ers started showing up the next year. It didn't take long until California's military governor, Colonel R.B. Mason, shipped 230 ounces of Sierra Gold East, which was struck as quarter eagles, $2.50 coins with the letters C.A.L. stamped on them to indicate the source of the gold. The sudden flow of gold from the West changed the value of coinage. After 1849, the bullion value of United States silver coins exceeded their face value by a few cents, making them worth more than an equivalent value in gold coins. In other words, 10 silver dollars were worth more as metal than a $10 gold piece. The inevitable consequence of gold influx was that all U.S. silver coins became the objects of hoarders and speculators, and they rapidly disappeared from the market. It was actually profitable to ship American silver coins out of the country to exchange at bullion value for gold, which was shipped back to the states and deposited at the mint for coining. The gold coins struck from these deposits carried a greater face value than the original silver pieces and speculators made a healthy profit. Partially because of the scarcity of silver U.S. coins, numerous foreign coins remained legal tender until 1857. Payment made with gold coins once again resulted in change being handed back with large handfuls of coppers and Spanish or Mexican silver pieces worn to the point of being unrecognizable. In 1851, the Mint started making a silver three-cent piece, which coincided with the reduction of the postal rate from five cents to three cents. It was a sliver of a coin, 14 millimeters in diameter, the smallest silver coin ever made. It was in this same year that Berks County Whig George Nichols Eckert, 1802-1865, was made seventh director of the U.S. Mint by President Millard Fillmore. Eckert had graduated from the medical department of the University of Pennsylvania in 1824. He became one of the founders of the Berks County Medical Society. Later, he moved to Pine Grove in Schuylkill County and got involved in the coal and iron trade. Eckert served in the 30th United States Congress from 1847 to 1849, one of 24 Pennsylvanians sitting in the House of Representatives. 
During his brief two-year tenure, a United States Mint was established in San Francisco to process the enormous amount of gold being mined during the gold rush. When Eckert stepped down after less than two years as Mint director, he was replaced by Philadelphian Thomas M. Pettit, who served only a few weeks before he died in office at age 56. When Eckert died in 1865, he was interred at Laurel Hill East Section X, lots 291-293. The ninth director of the Mint was yet another Philadelphian, James Ross Snowden. Snowden was born in Chester, Delaware County, Pennsylvania in 1810. His great-grandfather, Nathaniel Fitzrandolph, had raised the money and bought the land for Princeton University. In 1753, he gave the original four and a half acres on which Nassau Hall was built. The imposing wrought iron gate that is the official entrance to Princeton's campus is known as Fitzrandolph Gate. Many Princeton graduates do not consider their ceremony complete until they have left the campus via Fitzrandolph Gate. Known as Fighting Nat, Fitzrandolph served in the Revolutionary War, even though he was in his 70s at the time, and he was presented with a sword by the legislature of New Jersey. He also started the first subscription newspaper for Princeton College. Fitzrandolph's remains are interred in the wall of Holder Hall at Princeton University. James' father, the Reverend Nathaniel Randolph Snowden, 1770-1851, was curator of Dickinson College from 1794 until 1827. Dickinson, located in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, was chartered in 1783, making it the first college to be established after the formation of the United States. It was founded by Dr. Benjamin Rush, and in its day was the westernmost college in the United States. James Snowden attended Dickinson College, and then subsequently studied law. He was admitted to the bar at 19, and in 1830 he went to Franklin, Venango County, Pennsylvania, where he began practice. Soon after his admission to the bar, he became interested in the state militia, and was elected colonel of a local regiment. Shortly afterward, he was appointed Deputy Attorney General, or District Attorney, in Venango County. From 1838 to 1844, he was a member of the Pennsylvania Legislature, and he served as Speaker of the House of Representatives in 42 to 44. He then served as State Treasurer from 1845 until 1847. In September 1848, James Ross Snowden married Susan Engel Patterson, daughter of General Robert Patterson, not the Treasury Pattersons, but the military Pattersons. Her siblings included General Francis Engel Patterson and General Robert Emmett Patterson. James and Susan's marriage took place at the Patterson Mansion at 13th and Locust, which is now the location of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. James and Susan had six children together. Snowden was appointed as treasurer of the United States Mint from 1847 till 1850, and then he resumed practice as a lawyer in Pittsburgh, having been appointed solicitor of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. 
1853, he was appointed director of the Philadelphia Mint by President Franklin Pierce. Just as large double eagle gold pieces and tiny $1 gold coins and silver three cent pieces were flooding the market. Using a portmanteau of his own invention, he called the three centers trimes, whereas the citizenry had taken to calling them fish scales. The gold dollar pieces were actually just a whisper smaller than the trimes at 13 millimeters, about half an inch. Their small size drew criticism, and the Mint experimented with different ways to enlarge the coin without increasing its value. Eventually, Snowden decided to make it thinner so that it could be larger. In 1854, the Mint introduced the $3 gold coin at 20.5 millimeters. It proved to be fairly useless for all except coin collectors. Snowden became quite a numismatist himself after he took the job. During his eight-year tenure as Mint director, he established the Mint collection of metals and coins and had numerous metals struck to be used as trading material. The magnificent collection of coins now at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. is primarily his doing. He urged that all nations should be invited to adopt the dollar as a monetary unit, and he advocated a single standard, gold, for all countries. He also suggested the issuing of certificates on deposits of gold bullion at the Mint, its branches, and the assay office, in convenient sums and payable to the bearer. Snowden was prolific in his writing. He gave numerous addresses. He produced pamphlets on numismatics and currency, as well as seven annual Mint reports. He made contributions to journals. He published Descriptions of Coins in the United States Mint in 1860, Description of the Medals of Washington, of National and Miscellaneous Medals, and of other objects of interest in the Museum of the Mint, with biographical notices of the directors from 1792 to 1851. That was in 1861, the same year that he published The Mint at Philadelphia. He also did the Coins of the Bible and its money terms in 1864, and the Corn Planter Memorial that was published in Harrisburg in 1867. He also contributed articles on the Coin of the United States to the National Almanac of 1873, and articles on numismatics to Bouvier's Law Dictionary, the 12th edition, Philadelphia, 1868. During the Civil War, Snowden served as Lieutenant Colonel with the 1st Regiment of the Philadelphia Home Guard, the Gray Reserves of 1861. There's a statue of one of their members in front of the Union League at Broad and Sansom. After leaving the Mint, Snowden became proto-notary for the state Supreme Court. If you don't know what a proto-notary is, you're in the same boat with President Harry Truman who, when introduced to one during a campaign stop in Pittsburgh, said, What the hell is a prothonotary? Well, a prothonotary is the chief clerk of a court. The Carson City Mint had been created in 1863, following the discovery of the Comstock Load of Silver in 1859, but it was not put into operation until 1870. It ran until 1885, went on a hiatus, and then resumed operations in 1889, after which it ran until 1893, 
when it closed permanently. In 1878, the year that James Ross Snowden died, there was a vicious screed published as a letter to the editor of the Carson City, Nevada Daily Appeal. James Ross Snowden, once Speaker of the House of Representatives of Pennsylvania, married the oldest daughter of General Patterson, who didn't save Bull Run, and who furnished maggoty crackers and musty pork to the boys in Mexico and made a fortune after three failures. Colonel Snowden became director of the Mint under the aegis of the general and a nephew of Mrs. P.I. Engelnegus was appointed to a post where his duties were to weigh gold dust just then coming in large quantities from California. James Ross Snowden and his nephew now an aspirant for the directorship of the Philadelphia Mint, are all men of less than mediocrity, but with more cheek than will belong to the French Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. And liberty is in quotes. On 20 March 1878, James Ross Snowden died at his home in Homeville. He was initially buried there, but he was reinterred later at Laurel Hill East. He was 69 years old. James Ross Snowden's nephew, Archibald Loudon Snowden, was born in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. One of his great ancestors in America, William Fairfax Snowden, owned large tracts of land in what was subsequently known as Old City Proper. He owned it as early as 1669. I talked about another one of his ancestors who was a founder of Princeton University. A. Loudon's father, Isaac Wayne Snowden, was born in 1794 and he trained in medicine. He served as a surgeon under General Andrew Jackson during the Seminole War and at the Battle of New Orleans. He was severely wounded at the close of the Florida Campaign and resigned from the Army to practice medicine until his death in 1850. His younger brother was Treasury Director James Ross Snowden, 15 years his junior. Isaac married Marjorie Bynes Loudon in 1832. Their oldest son, Nathaniel Randolph Snowden, 1833-1900, also known as Old Ralph the Fisherman and Old Ralph the Shakespearean Scholar, lived in Salinas, California, where he drowned at age 66. Archibald Loudon Snowden, their second son, was born in 1835. After graduation from Jefferson College in Washington, Pennsylvania in 1856, where he was considered the most brilliant and effective orator at the college, he studied law. And in May 1857, his uncle James offered him a post as register of the United States Mint. He split his time between his work at the Mint and finishing his study of law. For several years, he served as president of the Literary Society of Philadelphia. When the Civil War broke out, the mints at New Orleans, Charlotte, and Dahlonega were seized by their respective state governments and turned over to the Confederacy. Small numbers of gold coins were produced initially, but the existing supplies of bullion ran out in a few months and the introduction of paper currency by both sides soon drove all hard money from circulation. Another example of Gresham's Law. The North started issuing notes payable on demand, 
Now, that worked initially, but speculators slowly started to convert them to specie, that is, gold and silver. This defeated the plan to reserve bullion in order to make international payments. In early 1862, issued notes that were not redeemable on demand were released, and they picked up the nickname Greenbacks. Within a few months, all gold and silver had disappeared from circulation. And by July 1862, businesses in cities on the East Coast found themselves unable to make change of anything less than a dollar, which was the smallest paper money being issued. Soon, United States postage stamps were used as a medium of exchange, but they wore out quickly and easily became dirty beyond recognition. The first mention of an almighty being showed up on the 1864 two-cent piece when In God We Trust replaced E Pluribus Unum on the larger coins. When the war broke out, Archibald Loudon Snowden helped raise a regiment of infantry and was elected its lieutenant colonel, although he was never mustered in that rank. Later, as a private in the First City Troop, commanded by Congressman Samuel Jackson Randall, 1828 to 1890, Laurel Hill East Section 14. Snowden served in the field during the 1863 Gettysburg Campaign. He acquired the honorific Colonel Snowden, which he used for the rest of his life, even after he was elected captain of the First City Troop in 1877. There is a magnificent oil painting of Captain Snowden hung in the third floor dining hall at the Troops Armory on 23rd Street. When the position of Chief Coiner became available in late 1866, Colonel Snowden, age 31, was nominated by President Johnson and unanimously confirmed by the Senate. He also received the unanimous endorsement of every officer of the Mint and of every bank and banker in Philadelphia. As Chief Coiner, he showed his organizational skills. He completely reorganized and revolutionized the way coins were made, and the mint's output increased proportionately. He invented and patented some of the necessary equipment, as well as bringing in machines from Vienna and London. It was in 1873 that Congress passed a new mint bill, finally placing the mint as a bureau within the Treasury Department. This elevated the mint director to an office in Washington, whereas the individual mints, including Philadelphia, would be under the leadership of a supervisor. This bill also eliminated several coins that were considered obsolete. The two-cent piece, the silver three-cent piece, the half-dime, and the silver dollar. And it slightly raised the weights of the dime, quarter-dollar, and a half-dollar to make their weights more easily expressed in metric terms at a time when the United States was flirting with the metric system. It was also around this time that the mint's floors were replaced with a raised iron honeycombed floor, which would capture any small amounts of precious metals caught on workers' boots. Now that doesn't sound like much, but this method every year captured about $23,000 of precious metal that might otherwise have been lost. After completely revamping the coin pressing process in Philadelphia, 
Colonel Snowden was elected vice president of the Fire Association, one of the oldest and largest insurance companies in the country. In 1878, he was elected president of that company. He was appointed postmaster of Philadelphia in 1877. His rules were the same as those he had promulgated at the Mint. All employees who do their duty will be retained. Those who do not will be removed. And once again, he made permanent improvements in the department. In December 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes offered Colonel Snowden the job as director of all the mints. But this position would have required a move to Washington, D.C., and Snowden declined. A few months later, Hayes tried again, and Snowden turned him down again, determined to stay in Philadelphia. But in February of 1879, the president offered Snowden the directorship of the Philadelphia Mint, and this time he accepted the position. He was unanimously confirmed by the Senate and assumed his position on the 1st of March, 1879, just in time for the battle of silver versus gold. That fight is beyond the scope of this podcast. A. Loudon Snowden served as Mint Superintendent until the inauguration of Grover Cleveland in 1885 when he voluntarily stepped down. He was 50 years old. His career, so long associated with the United States Mint at Philadelphia, was far from over. In 1887, Colonel Snowden served as the Marshal of the Centennial Celebration of the United States Constitution, a three-day Philadelphia event in September. In 1889, Snowden succeeded Alabamian Walker Fern and served simultaneously as United States Minister to Greece, Romania, and Serbia until 1892. He lived in Athens during this appointment. He then spent several months as the United States Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary to Spain. He was appointed by Grover Cleveland and succeeding Edward Bird Grubb Jr. from New Jersey, the only captain of the First City Troop, who was not a Philadelphian. On his return to the United States, Snowden became president of the Fairmount Park Commission. The park had been growing since the city acquired the Lemon Hill estate of Henry Pratt in 1844. It was now 3,000 acres within the city limits, the largest urban park in the country. One of Snowden's goals was to keep the newly developing automobile out of Fairmount Park. An 1899 editorial in the Philadelphia Inquirer held him to account for his backward thinking. Gentlemen who undertake to manage Fairmount Park are assuming a very foolish attitude. One man among them, A. Loudon Snowden, seems to be opposed to progress. He wants rules and regulations and all sorts of ridiculous falderall before automobiles are admitted to the park. The automobile is a fixture. It is here to stay. It will live long after the park commissioners are dead. It has a right in the park, and it will demand that right and acquire it, whether A. Loudon Snowden likes it or not. The only rule that it is all applicable to the case is the rule that applies to horses, the rule as to speed. This city has been charged with slowness. 
Snowden and his browbeaten colleagues are doing their level best to make the charges good. If they are not ashamed of themselves, every progressive Philadelphian is ashamed for them. The curse of Philadelphia always has been the pullbacks and the stranglers of progress. It won't do to contend that the horseless carriage frightens the horses, for it does not. Are the carriages in the park different from those on Broad Street? We ask again, who is A. Loudon Snowden that he should hold this town up by the tail? Well, if you are curious, the current speed limit on Forbidden Drive is seven miles per hour for all, and that includes horses and bicycles. Snowden's distaste for allowing automobiles in the park was overruled. In fact, from 1908 through 1911, there was actually an annual motor race conducted through Fairmount Park that attracted thousands of spectators. But his ideas were finally carried out in 1920 when vehicles were banned from what we now call Forbidden Drive, that beautiful five-and-a-half-mile stretch of level road that parallels the Wissahickon Creek. In 1903, Colonel Snowden was accused of making illegal profits through promotion of the Danville Bessemer Company, which had been dissolved. He was still president of the Park Commission. Others named in the suit included former state senator Charles A. Porter and Dr. Ludwig S. Filbert, a physician who had found there was more money to be made in asphalt and road materials than in medicine. Dr. Filbert is buried just behind the Bergdahl Mausoleum at Laurel Hill West. A newspaper article said, quote, The suit is brought to recover about $325,000 but is shrouded in mystery, end quote. In June of 1904, the suit was dismissed without a decision being made. On 16 February 1864, Snowden had married Elizabeth Robinson Smith, six years his junior. They had four children, of whom I will mention two. Charles Randolph Snowden was a champion polo player and a wealthy clubman who in 1913 was thrown from an automobile while returning from a morning fox hunt. His injuries were thought to be minor at the time, but he died at Bryn Mawr Hospital of internal injuries the next day. He was 42 years old. Now, the strange twist on this is that five years later, Randolph's widow married Captain John W. Converse, the man who had been driving the car from which he was thrown. Charles is buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill East. Their daughter, Carolyn Smith Snowden, 1865 to 1960, married Stuyvesant Wainwright, 1863 to 1930, in 1889. Before they divorced, there was a son named after her father, Loudon Snowden Wainwright, 1898 to 1942. Loudon's son, Loudon Wainwright Jr., became a writer for Life magazine for many years. And Loudon Wainwright Jr.'s son was Loudon Snowden Wainwright III, a singer-songwriter, perhaps best known for his lone top 40 hits, Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road in the 1970s. He also appeared in a few episodes of the television show MASH. And if you're a fan of Rufus Wainwright or Lucy Wainwright or Martha Wainwright Roach, 
The colonel is their great-great-great-grandfather. On 6 September 1912, Colonel A. Loudon Snowden died after a long illness. He was 77 years old. He is buried on Millionaire's Row at Laurel Hill East. It's at the very spot where the Laurel Hill Central Caretaker had a house for many years. It's almost next door neighbor to the J. Fred Zimmerman family, a mausoleum of theater impresarios. Archibald Loudon Snowden does not have a mausoleum. There are several final resting places at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, which are excedra. That's a bench or seats where people could literally sit and converse. Well, then there's the Heaton family plot in section B. There's a modest obelisk, maybe 15 feet tall. There's a cap on top with the family name Heaton on all four edges of the cap. The obelisk is sitting on what appears to be a floor made of marble tiles. And there's a waist-high three-sided wall around it. There's even a porch behind the obelisk. It's only six inches raised from the floor. Now, the obelisk has all the usual information you would expect, sacred to the memory of, etc., etc. The inscription for Augustus Heaton the Elder includes a familiar phrase from Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. But look behind the obelisk. Turn your eye to the inscription on the back wall. It says, Augustus Goodyear Heaton. Born at Philadelphia, April 28, 1844. Painter of Recall of Columbus, U.S. Capitol. Author of The Heart of David, parentheses, classic epic. You may find yourself thinking, is this a tombstone or a billboard? And what does any of this have to do with U.S. coinage? Well, the answer lies in the fascinating life of the polymath Augustus Goodyear Heaton, painter, author, poet, historian, playwright, and rabid coin collector. At birth, he was Augustus George Heaton, but when he was old enough, he changed his middle name to Goodyear. His father, Augustus the Elder, was born in Connecticut in 1815 to John Heaton, Jr. and Elizabeth Goodyear Heaton. Augustus the Elder had been brought to Philadelphia when he was 16 by his cousin, Charles Goodyear, the man who later developed vulcanized rubber and for whom the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was named. Augustus became a prominent wholesale merchant, a director of several leading banks, and one of the presidents of the board of directors of Girard College, along with familiar names like Frederick Fraley, Morton McMichael, Richard Vox, and Charles E. Lex. No relation. The New York Times noted that when General Grant visited Girard College on the last day of 1868, that's between his election and his inauguration, he was accompanied by Augustus Heaton, a member of the Union League, of which he was a founding member. Augustus the Elder's wife, Rosabella Crean Heaton, died at age 26 in 1850, when Augustus the Younger was six years old. 
So he was raised by his paternal grandmother. It was only then that he was baptized. Augustus the Elder lived as a widower for half a century, and when he died in 1900, he was buried next to his wife at the Laurel Hill East family plot. His estimated estate at death was more than a million dollars. Augustus Heaton the Younger discovered while he was quite young that he had a talent for drawing and sculpting and building. He drew plans of buildings, anatomical sketches. He even built a usable billiards table. When he was 15, he began to write verse. When he was 17, he rejected an opportunity for university in order to attend the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. There, he studied under landscape painter E.D. Lewis, marine painter Edward Moran, and the master of colors, Peter F. Rothermel. In the spring of 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, he exhibited his first picture, Sunshine and Shadow of War. It showed fresh troops marching forward in sunlight, while an ambulance train was returning in the opposite direction in the shade. This painting caused friends to encourage him to study in Paris. And when he arrived in December of 1863, it was just as the Ecole des Beaux-Arts opened to foreign students. Augustus Goodyear Heaton thus became the first American to study at this prestigious institute. While studying in France, Heaton claimed to have developed paint poisoning from the crowded classrooms. He returned to Philadelphia in November 1865 after the Civil War had ended. When he got home, he was elected president of the Sketch Club, and he became an associate at PAFA, where he taught from 1868 to 1878. For three years, he also taught and lectured at the School of Design for Women, where he was a head professor. He also sang oratorio as a bass in the Beethoven Society. He served as a stockholder in the Academy of Music and was a director of the YMCA. Once while in Boston, he presented an original illustration of Miles Standish to the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, with whom he spent the afternoon and evening. In 1874, Augustus Goodyear Heaton married Adelaide Griswold, daughter of New York lawyer Almond W. Griswold. It was a stormy marriage. They lived with her father for many years and then moved to Princeton, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Paris, and other European cities. On that European journey, he finished his most famous painting, The Recall of Columbus, in 1883, while he was in Rome. Any schoolboy of the day knew the story. Christopher Columbus was convinced he could reach Asia by sailing westward from Europe, and he tried to win favor and financial support for his expedition at the courts of Portugal in Spain. The Portuguese king rejected his proposal in 1484. Columbus then went to Spain, where he ultimately approached King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. After years of debate about the merits of Columbus's proposal, the monarchs dismissed him in early 1492, believing that his demands were too audacious and his attitude too uncompromising. So Columbus and his party dejectedly headed on horse for France. But as they crossed a small bridge near Granada, a royal messenger overtook him to present Queen Isabella's handwritten letter 
recalling him to court. There, in a change of heart, Isabella pledged her jewels to make possible the voyage of exploration. This historic moment was vividly described by Washington Irving in his widely read Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. Working in Spain from newly discovered original documents, Irving created what was to become the standard English language account of the Columbus story in the 19th century. In 1884, the U.S. government purchased the recall of Columbus for $3,000 and has displayed it ever since in the east corridor of the third floor of the Senate wing of the U.S. Capitol. That's the floor where, if you're a visitor, you can enter the Senate gallery to observe the proceedings. Heaton copyrighted the painting in 1891 as the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the New World approached. It was exhibited at the Colombian Historical Exposition in Madrid in 1892. That's the same exhibition where a lot of Samuel George Morton's skulls of Native Americans ended up on display also. The following year, he displayed the painting at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. It soon became widely known when it was reproduced as one of 16 Columbus commemorative stamps that were issued in 1893 to coincide with the opening of the Chicago Exposition. The recall of Columbus was reproduced on the 50-cent stamp. Another painting, Washington's first mission, was purchased by the Union League here in Philadelphia. 1892 was also when Heaton painted Winnie Davis, daughter of Jefferson and Verena Davis. It is possible that Verena and Augustus had known each other during the years that she lived in Philadelphia. That's where she came for her education. While painting Winnie's portrait, he found that he'd run out of his cigars. Uh, Verena gave him a box of cigars that had once belonged to her husband, who had died three years before. Although he smoked some of them, he kept many as souvenirs and occasionally would let guests at his summer home have a fragrant whiff of Jefferson Davis's cigars. Heaton and his family settled in Washington, D.C., where he built a home and a studio. It was in Washington that he renewed his passion for coin collection. He became a respected numismatist and recognized authority on mint marks. It was in 1893 that he published a treatise on coinage of the United States branch mints, which proposed, apparently for the first time, believe it or not, that numismatists collect coins based on the mint marks which showed from which mint the coin had originated. Now, at that time, there were still five mints, each with a different mark, although Philadelphia remained plain, and that is, without a mark. New Orleans coins were marked O, D for Denver, S for San Francisco, and CC for Carson City, which closed the year that Heaton published his guide. Heaton also served as third president of the American Numismatic Association. He governed from 1894 to 1899. In January 1895, the readers of The Numismatist were treated to an interesting article, A Tour Among the Coin Dealers by Augustus G. Heaton. He was a frequent contributor. In this article, he discussed, quote, J. Colvin Randall, 
a veteran in numismatics, has an attractive residence in the fashionable part of the city. He is well off, and he keeps up his interest in coins merely as a pastime. His den is a second-story back room, which is full of cabinets, loaded bookshelves, rare prints, and curios. He has a shrewd, genial face, fringed with short gray hair and beard, talks fluently in clear-cut Saxon, enjoys storytelling and with special gusto when someone's blundering in coins is subject of merriment. From May to November, however, he annually sheds his numismatic shell on the Jersey Shore, and then collectors may bait their hooks for him in vain. Now, I mentioned Joseph Colvin Randall, Jr., who lived from 1832 to 1901, because he is interred at Laurel Hill East. He's in Section M, lots 98 to 101. His name is on the side of a small obelisk, which you can see from the paved road as you head from the gatehouse to the central and south portions of the cemetery. While he was living in Washington, Heaton wrote and acted in French plays. The Pretty Hairdresser, a comedy in three acts. An Unknown Quantity, a comedy in two acts. In Honor of St. Valentine, a comedy in three acts, and several others. In 1898, Heaton petitioned for divorce, charging that Adelaide abandoned him in 1891. He alleged that his wife grew careless, failed to be a wife to him, and later refused to recognize him as a husband. Mrs. Heaton denied the charges and made a countercharge that Augustus had abandoned her. I cannot determine who raised their three children, Augustus, Harry, and Perry, but Heaton did dedicate a couple of books to his sons. Speaking of books, it was in 1900 that Heaton wrote his most famous book, The Heart of David, the Psalmist King. And remember to put in parentheses, classic epic. According to the New York Times, 29 December 1900, this is a 389-page book by Augustus George Heaton, not Goodyear, but George Heaton, being certain Bible chronicles set in order to compass the life and to show the love and zeal of the crown shepherd of Israel and written with dutiful imagination in the fuller manner of discourse illustrated by the author. You can find a copy of it, a PDF of it, at archives.com. I will warn you, it is written as a multi-character play. It is a difficult slog. Here is an example from Act 1. Thou mockest me, my father. Thou dost know the comeliest of men could never lose the girdle of my pride, save he were king or vanquisher of kings. Ay, thou dost smile, and I interpret all within thy heart. For thou, the valiant and exalted head of Israel and Judah, thou, the son of mighty Kish, who ruled in Benjamin, the son of Abiel, of Zeror's son, and others many, thou wouldst suffer not thy daughter, did she wish it, to forget the honor of thy house and of thy crown, and lo, I am no whit less proud than thou. I have no idea what I just said. In an annoying fashion, the stage directions included such guidelines as David entereth and David playeth. I find no record that this play was ever staged. In 1904, Heaton published a book of poetry called Fancies and Thoughts in Verse. 
At the rear of the book, he included four whimsical poems under the title Numismatic Verse. My favorite is the first one. It's called The Amorous Numismatist. An amorous numismatist met a fair damsel in a grove, and when he saw, he sighed and wist to have the maid return his love. Said he, a precious ninety-nine light olive scent I have in store, I treasure much, but for thee pine, and feel I love thee almost more. Said she, I now am quite content, my heart and hope are in no scent. It's really hyphenated that way, in no scent. The amorous numismatist, he wept that she could thus repel. There is no coin upon my list that I could love, I think, so well. I have a charming 1804, and both together I would give, I'm nearly sure, to thee a door accepted, and with thee to live. Said she, you dwell upon the scent, but not upon the scent I meant. Again, hyphenated. If, said the sad numismatist, my sense were bored and linked with wire, to form a bracelet for thy wrist, and prove the worth of my desire. If all the rarest of my gold were strung, thy tresses to be deck, my silver pieces most extolled were hung about thy snowy neck. Ah, laughed the maiden, tell me when I'll be an acquiescent then. It's actually not a bad poem. Uh, it's doggerel, but it's good doggerel. Heaton continued to paint and write and collect coins for the rest of his life. In 1912, he was a founding member of the New Rochelle Art Association. As a collector, he was one of only two people to own a complete collection of U.S. $3 and $1 gold coins from all five mints. He settled in West Palm Beach, Florida and Black Mountain, North Carolina during his final years. He founded the Palm Beach Art League. He was a frequent lecturer up and down the East Coast. I found an article about a lecture that he gave in Newport, Rhode Island in July 1917 on how to know a good picture. He finished the talk with a recitation of his poem, The Smile That Lingers. Heaton died in Washington, D.C. on 11 October 1930. He was 86 years old. In his will, he instructed that his painting, Baron von Steuben at Valley Forge, be sold at auction, as well as The Bathing Hour at Tranville and The Bride of the Farm. He left his coin collection to his granddaughter, Carolyn Heaton, and to his wife, who had deserted him nearly 50 years earlier. Augustus Goodyear Heaton left one dollar. I first learned of Heaton from Laurel Hill tour guide Rich Wilhelm, who includes him on almost every tour. Rich has several indirect connections with Heaton, which he expands upon when he's giving his tour. They are highly personal, and they are highly entertaining, but I am not going to share them with you. They are Rich's stories, and I recommend you go with him on one of the frequent tours that he gives so he can fill you in on the details on Augustus Goodyear Heaton.
the mid-September episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, will tell you about a politician and civil rights activist, C. Dolores Tucker, a woman who marched from Selma to Birmingham with Dr. King. She served as Pennsylvania's Secretary of State. Late in life, she took on the gangster rappers and their misogynistic lyrics and soon found herself the target of some of their songs. The October edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will talk about clocks and watch connections at the cemetery. People that kept Philadelphia on time during the colonial days and afterwards. I know I'm going to include Henry Voigt, who may have been Thomas Jefferson's favorite watchmaker, perhaps up there with David Rittenhouse. We do know that Jefferson visited him whenever he came to Philadelphia after the government moved to Washington. I'm going to include Matthias Baldwin in this. He trained as a jeweler, as a watchmaker, but he moved on to much bigger things like locomotives where he became extremely rich. I think I'm going to talk about the bell tower at Laurel Hill West and I may give a presentation on a watch that I saw on a tour of the armory last weekend. It's behind glass and it was given to the armory by their quartermaster, uh, Hugh Craig Jr., who is actually responsible for the armory being there. That might be a good excuse to talk about Hugh Craig Jr. If you can't tell, sometimes the things that I say in advance on the podcast don't turn out that way. I get digging and I find different stories and anyway that's that's what the plan is for the next one anyway Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia it's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61 admission is free as is parking in the lot across the street although spaces are very limited street parking on Ridge is not recommended Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakindwood with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. right now. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West have many historic tours. I told you about the upcoming ones in the middle of the podcast today. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours that I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tours number 1, number 2, and number 3 will give you the overview of some of our inhabitants. At All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number 1 is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast. 
Once you have fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits, and at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Contact me, joe at joelex.net, and you can stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Lots of online material was available for this. Uh, For one thing, there's the 1892 book, Illustrated History of the United States Mint, with short historical sketches and illustrations of the branch mints and assay officers and a complete description of American coinage, and on and on and on. It's got one of those typical Victorian titles. It just says, new revised edition edited by the publisher, but I can't see who the author or authors are on this. Published by George G. Evans, Philadelphia. His office is at uh, 1314 Filbert Street. And the date again is 1892. 1896, gold and silver coinage under the Constitution. Laws enacted thereon by Congress from the organization of the federal government to the present time. That is copyrighted by Rand McNally, 1896. First United States Mint, its people and its operations, Frank H. Stewart, privately printed in 1924 by Frank H. Stewart Electric Company. That's another PDF that I found online. Historical Notes on the United States Mint. The source was the American Journal of Numismatics and Bulletin of the American Numismatic and Archaeological Society. July 1892, Volume 28, Number 1, pages 10 through 12. The Beginnings of United States Coinage by Charles T. Tatman. That is also from the American Journal of Numismatics and the Bulletin of the American Numismatic and Archaeological Society. That is January 1895, Volume 29, Number 3. And then Establishment of the United States Mint. American Journal of Numismatics, etc. This is from July 1870, Volume 5, Number 1. There is no author listed on that one. For Robert Patterson's, I used the sources that I mentioned above, uh, the sections in there on the various directors of the mint. And I used his, um, his obituary in the newspaper. For the Snowdens, I depended on the books above. I also depended on a lot of different newspaper articles because Archibald Loudon Snowden was involved in so much other than the Mint because you know he was he was involved in the First City Troop. He was involved in the Post Office. He was involved in the Fairmont Park Commission. So there was a lot of different material, and I could have said a lot more about him. Also, just such a fascinating character. Augustus Goodyear Heaton, everything pretty much came from newspapers. 
there is really not a definitive biography of him. But again, he was he was a zealot who was in so many different places. He was a coin collector. He was a poet. He's best remembered today as an artist, if remembered at all. Uh, But, I mean, how many artists have their paintings displayed in the United States Senate? As far as information about the Mint itself, if you want more, I'm going to recommend a book called History of the United States Mint and Its Coinage. It was written by David W. Lang, L-A-N-G-E, Whitman Publishing Company. Copyright 2005. Whitman Publishing is in Atlanta, Georgia. It has more detail than you could want, but it just gave me a lot of really good information about the operation of the Mint early on and how some of the decisions were made. So if this intrigues you, that is the book to get. History of the United States Mint and its Coinage. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay well. I will maybe catch you at the cemetery.